Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Proximo's 20 Minutes with Podcast. If this is your first time listening, Proximo is the leading source of intelligence and events for the project, energy and infrastructure finance market. I'm Tom Nelthorpe, an editor at large here at Proximo, and I'm filling in for Thomas Hopkins, who is mysteriously out of the country on assignment. Before I introduce this month's guest, a little update on what we have on here at Proximo right now. This week, the team will be in Miami, where we are holding the Proximo Latin America Energy Infrastructure and Development Finance event. Uh, I'm going to be at that one. Um, that's going to be co-hosted with our sister titles, TXF and Uxello, uh, but promises to have some absolutely top-notch developers, funds, and governments there. And we're also holding our MENA Project Agency and Development Finance event in Dubai on 14th and 15th of March, again with TXF and Uxello. That will include a study on financing Egyptian wind projects, a series of regional roundtables, the chance to listen to some developers talk about their project pipeline in the MENA region. Uh, that platform is live now, so head over to proximoinfo.com to see who's attending. Um, and finally, we're also gearing up for the release of our full year 2022 data report, which promises to provide our first fully post-COVID set of data and a crucial chance to measure market health. Um, any questions about the above, email us at team at or you can find our page on LinkedIn. Um, but now it's time to introduce today's guest. Uh, he's Steve Cook, a director and the head of portfolio management at Sequoia Investment Management Company. Uh, Sequoia is a specialist infrastructure debt manager and manages two funds, the Sequoia Economic Infrastructure Income Fund and Sequoia Infrastructure Debt Fund. Um, Steve has been a principal uh, and was a founder um, of Sequoia um, since 2009. Um, before that, he was a banker at UBS and Morgan Stanley, uh, where he was in a prime position to help the European infrastructure securitization market evolve. Um, Steve, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, see, just just outline for us briefly, you know, your um, your your fund strategy. Uh, I think you can assume you're you're with a, a friendly and relatively infrastructure savvy audience. But how would you how would you explain what you do to um, to a, a, an infrastructure professional? Yeah, it's very straightforward. So we provide debt finance. So it's it's private debt loans um, to infrastructure projects around the world but in developed markets. So that's primarily the US, UK, Europe, and Australasia. Um, thank, thank you, Stephen. And roughly, uh, do you have a, a target split or an actual split between primary and, and secondary investments? Yeah, it was very interesting. So we, we're very predominantly primary market loans. Um, and the reason for that is is twofold. You know, firstly, you know, if you're actually making the loan, then obviously you have a great deal of control over the um, you know, the covenants, the way the deal is structured, and you can also um, source deals that fit in with your particular portfolio strategy. Whereas if you're in the secondary markets, you, by definition, you can only buy what's available. They may not have what you're looking for. Um, and you certainly have no say over covenants and structure. And then the other consideration is, you know, as the um, funds has got larger, we're writing larger and larger loans. We need to do that to deploy capital, but also we want to do that because as a rule of thumb, larger infrastructure projects tend to be stronger than smaller projects. And it's very difficult to, to, to transact in large size in the secondary markets. So naturally that leads us to the primary markets. So currently our split is probably 90 to 95% primary market deals. And we really only use the secondary market deals for sourcing um, either liquid investments because we like to hold a little bit of liquidity in the portfolio or occasionally very rarely we'll see something that we think is just exceptional value and we might uh, look to put that into the fund as well 
Thanks, Stephen. And I mean, what what was very interesting when I was I was looking to sort of put together a bio for you was you sort of founded Sequoia in two thousand and nine in the aftermath of the last sort of great credit market dislocation. Um, you know, big bank liquidity issues back then, um, and now here we are in twenty twenty three with a um. A, a slightly, I guess, without leading you too much, slightly unsettled uh, credit market conditions. Um, what's the positioning for funds like yourselves today? Is it as is it as promising, or given that you're now a bit more sort of part of the market plumbing, is it not so much a you know an an an, an entry into the market so much as you know you're you're just there and available. No, we, we actually really like market conditions at the moment. Um, you know, spreads, lending spreads are still um, elevated compared to 12 months ago. They've come in a little bit over the last month or so, but they're still pretty wide by historic standards. Obviously, interest rates are higher, and that helps us, you know, cover our dividend, cover a payout to our investors. In fact, we've very recently increased the dividend on the listed fund by about 10% on, on the back of higher interest rates. So the sort of returns that you can get uh, are good. Um, on top of that, we've seen over the last 12 months a, um, a reduction in activity in the high-yield bond markets and the leveraged loan markets. Now, the high-yield markets have opened quite strongly in 2023, but overall, you know, certainly lower, lower issuance over the last 12 months than uh, historically has been the case. In fact, in 2022, high-yield bond issuance was down more than 80% compared to the previous year. And the reason why that's important is that it reduces the sort of competition for um, for capital. In other words, you know, borrowers who historically would have perhaps financed themselves in the high-yield bond market are now turning to private credit. So we've really been awash with opportunities over the last uh, 12 months. In fact, miles more than we can actually um, you know, possibly consider even doing. We've historically turned down about 90% of the opportunities that we've seen. I guess right now it's probably 95% plus that we're turning down. So that gives us, you know, obviously a lot of pricing power, but also a lot of ability to really pick the parts of the market that we think are attractive, um, you know, low credit risk, good return, and and fit in with our overall portfolio strategy. And, and it's very interesting to hear you talk about um, what's going on in the high yield market. Um, I, possibly this is a this is a fault of the the project infrastructure finance market more generally. Uh, in the center of gravity sometimes is the banks, but in terms of the you know the other providers that you define yourselves against, has that evolved over the years? So did you initially think in two thousand nine that changes to whatever the regulatory infrastructure for banks were going to create an opportunity? Um, but that now it is a bit more of a, uh, a sort of relative pricing in, in different credit markets. Has that changed? Or were you always saying to yourself, we could be a alternative or a competitor to a, a high yield it's, or a project bond refinancing? No, it's really changed a lot over the last 12 years. I mean, if you go back to, you know, before the last financial crisis, 2007, 2008, in Europe, I forget the exact number, but it was something like 95% of all infrastructure debt was provided by lending banks, both senior and mezzanine debt. Um, it was a lower percentage in the US uh, where the bond markets were, played a bigger role. And obviously you got the municipal bond market as well there. But but in Europe, it was you know almost completely bank dominated. And we realized actually, it's one of the reasons we, we set up the business that 
you know, um, BAL3 was going to make it harder for banks to hold long-dated um, loans, unrated loans on the on the balance sheet. Uh, and they also had much uh, less risk appetite and, and smaller balance sheets, right? You know, one of the consequences of the financial crisis was that banks' balance sheets shrunk because they wanted to take less risk and have less leverage. At the same time, we had Solvency 2 coming in where insurance companies were going to be rewarded for holding, um, you know, infrastructure debt assets, right? They have lower capital charges for uh, various instruments and infrastructure debt is one of those sort of rewarded asset types. However, you know, within many insurance companies, there wasn't really in-house expertise to do project finance or, or infrastructure funding. And we saw a role for ourselves in terms of, you know, providing that um, that expertise and helping the transition of um, lending from being purely a, uh, a banking product, which is what it was before the financial crisis, into a investment product, which is clearly the direction of travel. What, what's actually happened is, is, I guess, a few things. First of all, bank lending certainly has, has grown right over the last decade. But I don't think it's grown in line with the opportunities, right? So there's, I think we might talk about this later, but tremendous demand for capital in, in a whole host of areas, including energy transition, decarbonization, TMT, et cetera. And bank lending hasn't really kept up with that. But secondly, also risk appetite from banks remains much lower than it was before the financial crisis. We, we very rarely see banks providing um, mezzanine debt or subordinated debt in general. Um, that tends to be provided more by institutional lenders and funds. So we've seen that happening at the bank side. You know, at the same time, some of the very large insurance companies have become direct lenders in the market. And, and obviously that suits them very well, given the amount of capital that they're able to deploy. But actually for a lot of investors, um, a fund like ours makes sense because it is a you know very specialist, very technical asset class. It's one where it's hard to originate product, right? You know, you can't just call up your broker and get an infrastructure loan over the phone, as it were. You actually have to work hard to, to make these loans, to due diligence them. And we, that's the expertise that we provide, which enables more um, investors, whether that's institutions, but also actually through the listed fund, we can provide capital for uh, providing investment opportunity for individuals and small institutions as well uh, to access this this, this market. And, and so, I mean, Steve, the other sort of big recent period of, of dislocation was, was obviously the, the, the pandemic when... Um, it, it had some sort of rather interesting sort of second order effects on different asset classes, basically, in probably different jurisdictions as well. Um, did you did you find that there was there was a fairly strong sort of correlation within infrastructure, or were you you able you know either with your portfolio or just just watching what was out there in the market see a bit of a benefit in terms of sort of diversification of credits during that during that dislocation? Diversifications absolutely key right it's it's the probably the simplest and most effective risk management tool there is especially when you have um idiosyncratic or shock kinds of risks such as the pandemic so um you know to give you a concrete example one of the assets we finance is a ferry company that operates between uh germany and denmark and for a period of time the border was closed to passengers it was open for freight but closed for passengers well that's 
that's not a stress. That's not a scenario you would normally run when you're sizing credit. It's a pure, a pure shock, as it were. Um, and that obviously affected things like the transport sector, you know, student accommodation, etc. You know, they're all they're all hit by this idiosyncratic risk. However, other parts of the portfolio either weren't really affected or even benefited. So we saw our TMT assets, things like um, data centers. We had a subsea data cable at the time. Telecoms towers all performed really strongly. Obviously, there was a lot of demand for um, you know, uh, technology TMT because people were working from home. Um, the energy sector, you know, obviously had a shock at the beginning of COVID. If you go back to March 2020, when oil prices declined, but actually since then has performed really robustly. Um, and so, what you find naturally and inevitably is some parts of the portfolio do relatively well, other bits less well. And it's also true in cases of jurisdictions as well. Of course, you know, the markets are very different between you know, the US and, and, and UK, for example, in many ways, and energy markets are completely different, for example. And, and so the to, to, to go back to the, the sort of here and now in the last last 12 months, um, there was, um, I, I think, in the wider credit markets, um, and, and we'll ask whether whether this was a feature of infrastructure, but there was certainly a feeling that there were a large number of very savvy financial sponsors that were possibly putting into place what they'd learned in, I don't know, the private equity or the leverage loan markets. Um, really putting pressure on covenants and, and, and terms in, in terms of credit. And so hearing you say that, you know, most of your work is primary and that you can afford at least now to be choosy, I'm very curious about how, you know, whether you observed um, that sort of sponsor pressure on, on terms and covenants in, in this market uh, and whether you were able to sort of slightly insulate your business from, from that trend. I mean, it's always, it's always been a theme, I think, actually, that the you know, large, well-organized sponsors um, try to exert pressure on, on lending, lenders, right? Whether that's in terms of margins, covenants, structure, the amount of amortization, you know, 101 different ways of doing it. And it's, you know, um, it's a trade-off, right? In the sense that, as I mentioned earlier, you know, large sponsors doing large projects typically are better quality than, you know, smaller, less experienced sponsors doing smaller projects. That's Obviously, a rule of thumb, and there's many exceptions, but it's not a bad rule of thumb. You know, so it, that's one of the areas in which being able to be very selective is is very helpful, right? You know, because unlike a um, you know a lending bank, we don't have, as it were, particular uh, focus areas or relationships we have to maintain. There's no pressure on us to do loans for relationship reasons. Um, you know, we're able to be quite objective and and look at it like an investor, I guess, as opposed to a, as opposed to how a bank might look at things. So yeah, we negotiate very hard on covenants. I would say typically we're rarely the uh, lowest cost lender, and we are rarely the sort of softest, as it were, when it comes on covenants. But we do win a lot of business by being, I think, very good at execution, very reliable partner, and having done repeat business with with a lot of these large sponsors. So, I think our reputation in the market does enable us to attract to to attract some kind of premium on, on the lending in terms of economics and and covenants as well. Yeah, that, that's interesting. We've seen it in a, in a few markets and a few industries over the years that if you can be that that almost that marginal um, provider of capital that gets a big deal over the line, that can be a good position to be in. Um, Definitely. 
So uh, the other thing that, that that's sort of fascinating about about your model is is the the listing of the fund, um, particularly on the equity side. You know, listings um, have had a um, had their ups and downs. I, I guess large capital intensive commitments, usually very long dated. Um, you know, there's there's probably a reason why so many you know, big infrastructure corporates have 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 gone private. For you, what are the? Um, I guess there are advantages for the investors, but for you as a manager. What are the, the, the sort of the challenges and the um, uh, and the opportunities of, of having a or managing a listed fund? Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting question, and I'm you know constantly surprised that you know other markets outside the UK don't have listed funds in quite the same way as as we do here, because I think it's actually a an excellent structure for um, illiquid investments, right? Whether that's private debt or, or other things, and the reason is. You know, obviously the underlying loans that we're making to projects, they're not liquid, right? You know, they're not rated, they're not in bond formats. Um, sometimes we're the only lender, it's a bilateral loan. But actually by having the having the ability of, of buying and selling shares, our investors can get some liquidity, right? And that's obviously very valuable to, to many investors. From our perspective, um, I think it's a good structure because it's it's sort of permanent capital, I say sort of because there are continuation votes, right? It's not like the company is set up to last in perpetuity, but actually putting those to one side, it's certainly very long-term capital. And that gives us a lot of flexibility in terms of how we structure the loan, right? And let me give you a concrete example. Sometimes borrowers come to us and say, we're looking to do an acquisition. Um, we'd like a short-term loan, a bridge loan to enable that acquisition to take place. And then we're going to do X, Y, or Z, you know, refinance it or, or sell part of it or merge it or whatever. Most debt funds don't like doing bridge loans because short dated loans don't fit very well into a lot of fund structures. You know, when the loan repays, you have to give the money back to your investors. And that's unattractive for the investors. It's also unattractive for the manager. Whereas we're quite happy to do some short dated loans because they tend to be very profitable. You have very good fees. Uh, typically, you know, not not super high risk in many cases because the deal is not about maximizing leverage. It's about facilitating a transaction for the sponsor. Conversely, we can also do very long dated loans, right? You know, if you have a project with extremely stable cash flows, good visibility, long term assets, there's no reason why you can't lend to that project for ten years or or, or longer. And again, you know, we don't have any constraints around doing those sorts of loans in the fund. So we have a lot of flexibility to structure our deal in a way that makes sense to us as lender, right, from a credit perspective, but also is beneficial to the to the borrower, right? It can meet their objectives. So that also helps us to win business. It also, therefore, helps us to earn a good return because if you can provide a solution to a borrower, which isn't readily available in the market, then that obviously you can you can charge for that. You can charge a premium for being flexible on the structure of your capital. The other thing that's, I think, very helpful to us in the fund is it comes in a fairly unconstrained way in terms of the types of currencies that we can lend in, whether the debt is fixed rate, floating rate, we can do index linked loans. We can do lo loans that are drawn down over time, like a construction facility and loans that repay gradually. So we look at things on a portfolio level, look at all the cash flows. We hedge out all the currency exposure at a portfolio level. 
and not that you can't recreate that within a private fund, but often it's difficult and you're constrained and you can't get hedging lines or it's more difficult to do hedging. Whereas we, you know, have a lot of flexibility, especially given the size of the fund, you know, to do that and we get very good pricing on hedging as well. So that level of flexibility, again, it's valuable to us as lenders and therefore we can charge a premium for it, uh, you know, to our to, to our borrowers. Yeah, Steve, fascinating to hear you talk about sort of listing as freedom almost, which um, is not something you always hear about in, in capital markets. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, I'm, I'm sort of currently reviewing our, um, our sort of data for the for the 2022 full year. And it, it's looking to me like a very strong sort of brownfield and, and acquisition market, um, but less less good on the sort of the, the greenfield um, repo market, which we've historically really associated just with the government's turning on the, the procurement taps really as much as anything else. Um, but, but from your point of view, are there very, are there, are there any dislocations in the, in the relative attractiveness of, of greenfield and brownfield assets, or is it just a question of supply and demand really? I guess, I guess two thoughts. I mean, one is as a strategy, we prefer refinancings and brownfield over greenfield, right? And that's very simply because, um, you know, development of new projects has been proven time and time again to be the most risky type of lending and in infrastructure. Um, you know, there's lots of really astonishing stats around this, but one one thing that I always remember is that a project is twice as likely to default in construction um, as it is during operations, even though the construction period might only be, you know, whatever it is, two or three years, and the operational period might be 20 or 30 years, right? So the credit risk is really concentrated up front. And then the second thing is, in our opinion, you know, lenders aren't particularly well compensated uh, by the market for construction risk. So obviously, if you um, are taking more risk, you ought to get paid more as a lender. That's not always the case, right? So our strategy in general is to focus on uh, refinancings of operational projects. And in fact, we have a a cap at 20% in the portfolio for construction risk loans, typically around 10 to 15%. So it's only a, a minor activity. There is, a, um, I think, one, one interesting thing at the moment. In the US, um, as you're probably aware, there's this Inflation Reduction Act, the IRA, mm -hmm. which is going to spur a huge amount of new development in, in a number of sectors, you know, renewable energy, but actually a lot of things related to decarbonization, energy transition, etc. And, you know, I think there will be some interesting opportunities coming out of that. You know, there's an enormous amount of equity capital being raised that will all need gearing up. Um, in many cases, things like renewable energy, the construction is not super high risk. You know, there are risks for sure. But actually, if you're doing things like ground mounted solar, it's a pretty straightforward piece of civil engineering once you've got the kit and your supply lines are all set up properly um so we may see activity there and that might be interesting for us going forward i think but that's i mean it's very interesting you mentioning um sort of the undercompensation for construction risk but, but also the role the surprisingly outsized role that um relationship pull sometimes exerts in the in the infrastructure debt markets and i guess the one of the one of the possibly one of the secrets to banks continued success um in, in this market and construction is that they have these relationships um, which they need to keep on top of with big construction companies 
um, and that and that keeps that market ticking over <laughs> quite. I think quite I think so, but but there is also another aspect which you know is is very important, which is you know banks quite quite reasonably can make a lot of ancillary revenues off um, you know these construction projects and off those relationships, right? Whether it's providing advisory services, hedging facilities, VAT lines, equity bridges, you know these are all good, low-risk, profitable business. Um, and obviously, funds don't participate in that. So that could well be a structural reason why construction lending is undercompensated. You know, if banks are providing it, and effectively they're able to, as it were, subsidize the cost of lending through ancillary business, then that's fair enough for them. That's a perfectly valid business model, but it's not one that works for us or for most funds, actually. In fact, thanks to you. A couple of final things, and this this could be a short or a very long answer, I, I guess. <laughs> um, possibly sort of 10 years ago, there were these endless debates about what does and doesn't constitute infrastructure. And I feel that the equivalent of that conversation these days is um, understanding and defining ESG in, in investment. Um, I guess from your point of view, which which of those definitions do you struggle with the least, infrastructure or, or ESG? I think infrastructure is an interesting one because you sort of know you know it when you see it, right? I mean, there's no doubt that a toll road and a power plant and you know solar energy are all infrastructure, and you know a corner shop isn't. Um, that's not a definition, but it tends in practice to mean that you know you don't really have that many issues over where you draw your boundaries. So we define infrastructure by sector. And then we have a very small bucket for projects with infrastructure characteristics that don't fit into those sectors, but it's it's tiny, right? You know, so I don't really have a problem over what's meant by infrastructure. I think for ESG, this has been a you know it's been a huge focus for us as a manager over the last few years. Um, you know, I think we've been a market leader in in private infrastructure debt. We won a actually won an award this week for the best global ESG investment strategy from CFI and. For us, ESG in, in the context of private debt, you know, is is really about a few things, you know, so it's about obviously negative screening, you know, you need to be clear about what you're not going to do. Um, you need to have some thematic investing, right? So positive screening, that's part of our strategy. You need to have a high level of reporting, right? So we have ESG scoring, which is independently assessed. And obviously, there's metrics such as what's needed for SFDR, carbon emissions, et cetera. And then it's also, fourthly, about engagement with our borrowers. So, you know, building in sustainability link provisions into loans, having the right covenants, having the right dialogue with borrowers, getting reporting from them over their um, activities. And when you put all those things together, you know, positive screening, negative screening, reporting and engagement, I think you actually start to have quite a, coherent strategy when it comes to ESG. And, um, you know, I think it's something, you know, which obviously investors are really focused on. Um, and it's going to be a theme, well, it's here to stay, put it that way, right? So everyone's got to take it seriously. I mean, Steve, I think there's a whole other podcast about about talking to borrowers about ESG disclosures. And I think we'll oh, for sure. that for another day. <laughs> but, but one final one, and, and this is, I don't, I don't, hopefully it's an existential opportunity rather than an existential threat, but we are, we're seeing um, some demands for quite large amounts of capital for the energy transition, which will will define quite widely everything from renewables to electrifying transport to you know new new fuels, and we're seeing sort of so far banks keep you know keep up to speed on this. 
they got their heads around batteries quite quickly. Um, hydrogen looks like a similar learning curve. Um, do you, you know how do you how do you you know as a as a as a debt fund manager think you'll be able to manage some of the um, some of the issues that sort of transition assets are gonna are gonna throw up? Yeah, I think I think again that's probably quite a long answer in some ways. I mean, in general, lenders don't cope very well with technology risk, right? They either shy, shy away from it or um, you know, they, they often get it wrong, right? So, you know, I think for us at least the story on hydrogen is, you know, the jury's out a little bit. I think batteries can work in certain circumstances, although um not without its own challenges for sure. Um, you know, I think there's little merit in rushing into some of these new sectors given the sort of breadth of opportunities. But I think over time obviously they're gonna be increasingly important. You say it's a it's a large market. I think that's an understatement. I think it's hundreds of billions, if not trillions, uh, needed over the coming decade or so. And you know, obviously private debt funds are gonna play a role in that alongside banks, governments, institutions, etc. So we're really excited, you know, about some of these opportunities. It's a major theme for us, right? Whether it's renewable energy or things like grid stabilization, we've done smart meters, we've done some electric vehicles, etc. So we see lots of opportunities. I think the the flip side is, you know, if you're financing some of the some of the legacy assets, in fact, assets typically with poor ESG profiles, perhaps in the power sector or elsewhere, that is going to become increasingly risky you know i can imagine you know a lot of those projects you know not having such a long economic life there's a risk of stranded assets there's a risk of things like carbon taxes or other kinds of penalties being imposed upon polluting assets and so actually it's a great example of where esg and credit you know line up i think in quite a nice way all right. Well, I think we've, we've run pretty heavily <laughs> over there. Um, so, Steve Cook, thanks so much for your quite a lot more than, than 20 minutes. A real pleasure um, hearing you speak and, and getting some of your, some of your observations. Uh, thank you. Thank you again very much for, for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Well, as we mentioned at the beginning, we hope to have a chance to catch up with um, all of you at our events in Dubai and Miami in March. Um, but that's it for us this month. Um, next month, we're looking at hosting a large and storied U.S. independent power producer. Um, we probably can't say more than that right now. You'll just have to stay tuned. But for now, thanks for listening and goodbye. Goodbye.